All right, let's start with prayer. Father, thanks so much, and we pray in these next few minutes that you would touch our hearts. We make them available to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I think Alex said an interesting thing that's important for all of us to think about. You know, Alex said business that we're undertaking of building a facility, it's not just an extra little add-on. This is a really important deal to God. This is why we're spending so much time and energy talking about it, because this is a big deal to God. So what I'm not going to talk long this morning, but I want to take some time this morning to talk about the importance of place in God's mind, because I think place is a big deal to God. Listen to this. In a letter written to the directors of the West India Company dated November 5th, 1626, Dutch merchant Pietra Schaeg, sorry for the pronunciation, Jan, said this, and I'm quoting. This letter is in a museum in Holland. They have purchased the island of Manhattes from the savages for the value of 60 guilders. We still have that letter. Just so you know, when adjusted for inflation, 60 guilders today equals approximately $951. This has to be one of the great real estate deals of all time. That means the Dutch paid roughly $951 for 23 square miles of real estate that today is worth over $1,000 a square foot. You should know, I believe, that the deal Gateway got is just as good. 32 acres we bought in 1997 on the corner of what would one day be Gum Spring Road and Tall Cedars Parkway. In the long run, I believe our deal may be just as good as the deal that the Dutch merchant got. Now, when I said just now the 32 acres that we bought, let me be clear, what I really mean is the 32 acres someone bought for us. That's right, the the Southern Baptist of Virginia, of all people, bought 32 acres for us in our name. They held it for us for five years, during which time the price of that acreage increased conservatively tenfold. And then they sold us the 32 acres for what they paid for it. Wow, God. That was the right time to be obnoxious. According to the European version of the Manhattan Island deal, the Dutch got Manhattan Island through the incredible art of deal-making. And now that I've seen our Dutchman Jan negotiate with banks for the last couple of weeks, I can believe it. But there's also a persistent account uh, supposedly passed down among New York Indian tribes which says that a group of Indians were passing through Manhattan Island. They actually lived on Long Island. They stumbled into Dutch explorers and they were more than happy to take their money for a piece of land that no one owned. Who knows who got swindled in that deal? But I do know that Gateway... We got our property not through clever planning or strategic thinking and not through the forceful art of deal-making. Gateway got its property because God wanted to build a church that would occupy exactly that location, and he decided that it would be us. Wow, God. God has always been into place. He knows that we, all of us, We occupy place. 
And for a short period of time, God the Son squeezed himself into human skin, and he occupied a very specific place. But more than that, we can see the degree to which God emphasizes place by reading the story arc of the Old Testament. In some ways, for those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, you'll know the Old Testament is really a testament to the importance of place to God. So let's just look at some of the high markers of that. We'll go through this quickly. If you've got a Bible, you're going to need to flip a little this morning. It's not on the screen, and you can just listen if you don't have a Bible. Or if you've got it on your Bible app, we'll be in a few books, especially early in the Old Testament, so it'll be easy to find. But we're going to start in Genesis. And Genesis 12, God is beginning his connection with Abraham, who would be the father of faith. And he's kind of initiating contact with Abraham. One of the first things that he does with Abraham to initiate a relationship with Abraham is talk about a place. Genesis 12, verse 1, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. And then he tells them he's going to make them a blessing, and the people that bless him, he's going to bless, and they're going to be a blessing to everyone. He reiterates that a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 15. And Genesis chapter 15 is an elaborate Old Testament covenant ceremony, and a covenant is the Old Testament word for treaty. And this was when God was essentially establishing a treaty between himself, a covenant, a relationship, ancient Near Eastern word for relationship, connection. He was establishing a relationship between himself and people. And he was using Abraham as an illustration of this. Now, we don't have time to really talk about Genesis 15 this morning, but this is a passage you should go back sometime and read. It will knock you out, especially if you know the history of it. What's being described here is a pretty typical ancient Near Eastern covenant ceremony. So two great kings would get together. Usually it was a greater king and a lesser king. And what would happen is they would bring an elaborate array of animals and they would cut those animals in half to sacrifice them. In fact, the Old Testament word for covenant or treaty is essentially a derivative of the word cut. So they would come together and they would get the animals out and they would cut them in half to sacrifice them partly to say we're really serious about this, partly to say we want all the powers of heaven and earth involved in this, and they would lay them out on altars, one on either side, and then the lesser king would pass through as a way of saying, I agree. And then the greater king would pass through as a way of saying, I agree. Well, given that background, listen to Genesis chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. I'm your great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, What can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram said, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir because he believed at this point God had promised him that he was going to be a great nation, but he's had no children. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside, look at the heavens, count the stars, that's going to be your descendants. He goes on. Abram then, critical verse that the Apostle Paul later quotes in building his, constructing his theology of what it means to be faithful. Abram believed the Lord, and God credited it to him as righteousness, as being right with him, that belief. He put it to his credit and said, yes, you and I are connected. He also said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of the land of Ur, the Chaldees, to this land to take possession of it again, talking about the land. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and bring me those animals. We're going to cut them in half. 
Abram brought all these, cut them in half, and arranged the halves on opposite each other. The birds, however, he didn't cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down the carcasses, but Abram drove them away as the sun was setting. Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick darkness, dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at an old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. You'll come back here to the land. Then listen to this. When the sun had set, now this is one of those weird Old Testament passages that you don't really get unless you know that context. Remember the Old Testament covenant making. Listen to how cool this is. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, the smoking pot with blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said to your descendants, I will give this land. And he gives the contours of the land. I'm going to give this land. During his dream, this blazing torch passes between the covenant pieces. And Abraham's asleep. And what I believe what God is essentially communicating there, you know, normally what would happen in those settings is the great king would pass through the pieces. And then the lesser king would pass through the pieces, essentially saying, we agree. But what God did is God passed through the pieces while Abraham's asleep, communicating to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to keep both sides of the covenant. I'm going to keep your side and mine. I'm going to bring you into the land and I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to be faithful. And even when you're not faithful, when your followers aren't faithful for 400 years, they're going to be in another land, but I'm still going to do it. I'm going to give you a place. That's how important place is to God. Genesis 26, 1 through 6. Now Abraham has a son and his name is Isaac. Genesis 26, 1 through 6. Take my word for it. God affirms his covenant with Isaac. Now Abraham's son. And it includes the land. I'm going to give your descendants this land. And then let's go to Genesis 28. In Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 15. This is now Isaac's son, Jacob. And now Jacob has been wandering, and he's kind of in trouble with his family. He goes to sleep one night, he's out in the open country, and while he's asleep, he has this dream of a ladder, and I'm going to read this dream. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one stone from there, he put it under his head and laid down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and said to him, I am the Lord, the God of your father and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like dust. There'll be so many. Yet again, with Abraham and then with his son Isaac and then with his son and Abraham's grandson Jacob, who would later, God would change his name to Israel. That's why we call them the sons of Israel. He confirmed in each generation, I'm going to give you this land. Place is so critically important to God that God kept over and over again reaffirming place to his people. That piece of ground is no different than any other piece of ground. I believe that God does that in part to accommodate himself to us, and especially to an ancient Near Eastern mindset. For them, place was very important. It was important to be anchored. It was important to know who you are to have a place. And so God wanted to give his people a place. I also think there was something central and unifying about it. It brought them together in a certain place. But we don't really know why. Not fully. We know, however, that God, every time he got an opportunity to rehearse what his blessings would include to his first people, they always included a mention of place. 
God accommodates himself to them. He speaks to them, confirming himself, confirming his protection of them, confirming their place, their significance, and their land. Now, in Exodus chapter 3, we move a few generations later. I'm not going to go through the Old Old, Old Testament, don't worry. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, this is an account that some of you, if you've seen the Prince of Egypt, you know this account. If you've read the Old Testament, you know about this. This is Moses, and Moses has kind of been wandering in the desert for a while, and God speaks to him and begins the process of calling Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. They've been in Egypt now for what God told Abraham, 400 years. And so he's going to have Moses go back and lead them out of slavery. This is the encounter, and let me start reading in verse 7. So you remember there's a burning bush, and he goes up to it, and the voice comes out of the bush, freaks Moses out, and says, you know, I am. That's who I am. I am. That's my name, Yahweh. I am. Verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, and blah, 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 and list them all. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. I'm going to take them out of that land, and I'm going to bring them to this land. So here's what I want you to do. I want you right now to identify two seats around you. I'm so sorry for this, but we're going to be obnoxious. I want you to identify two seats around you. And the people around you are going to move. So it could be the seat next to you. I don't want you to go far. Let's do it this way. Let's make it easier. Identify a seat to your left and a seat to your right. Okay, so you are right now in Ur. That's where Abraham was born. It's in the Fertile Crescent, they believe, near the rivers of the Tigris and the Euphrates. And God tells him, I want you to leave everything you know. There's no bus service. This is the ancient Near East. Abraham doesn't know anything but Ur. In fact, Abraham doesn't know anyone who knows anything but Ur. I want you to leave all of that, and I want you to strike out, follow me. I'll tell you where. What? That's right. So Abraham does it. He leaves Ur. So you're in Ur right now. You're going to have to identify two spots, because you're going to go to the promised land, and then you're going to go to Egypt. So Abraham left, and I want you to leave. Move somewhere left. Now, I want, right now, I just want you to pause and relish at how comfortable this seat is that you're in and how awesome the surroundings are, just how awesome it is that you are where you are. This is, in fact, the seat you were made for. You came in this morning. Most of you sat where you were because you were late. You didn't want to sit on the front row. But right now, you are in the seat that you were designed for. (laughs) Wow, God. Okay. Yes. So this is the promised land. And Abraham moved here, and he was here for the next generation, Isaac. Isaac stayed here. And he was here for another generation, Jacob. And Jacob stayed here. And then some of you know Jacob's sons. They sold one of their brothers into slavery. He goes to Egypt. There's famine in the land. All the brothers end up coming to that brother. They recognize it's Joseph. Yay, God. Not wow, but yay, God. They all end up coming to Egypt, and they're with their brother, and Jacob is feeding them, and it's awesome, except only a couple of generations later, the ruler in Egypt forgets who Joseph was and begins to oppress the people. And then it gets worse and worse over time, and for 400 years they were slaves in the land of Egypt, so I want you to move again. 
to the right, but don't go back to your original seat because you're going to go to Egypt. Now, go. I want you to now feel just how uncomfortable this seat is. Your back is burdened, and because this is Egypt, and you end up being here for 400 years until God comes to Moses and he says, I'm going to take my people out of this place, and I'm going to bring them back to their place, back to the place I made them for, back to home. And that keeps coming up over and over and over again in the Old Testament because place is important to God. It's so important to God that I want you now to go back to your original seat. So then Moses leads the people out of Egypt and he leads them to the edge of the promised land. And some of you know this story because Moses leads them to the edge of the promised land and he says, let's go in, this is our land. This is the land that God has talked to us about for generations. This is the land that was promised to us because place is significant to God. And they send some spies in and they look and they realize, oh, we can't go in. You know, it's too expensive. There are bankers. There's so many development issues. We can't go in. And so they decide not to go. And God says, that's a problem. So he ends up rebuking them and punishing them for an entire generation because they wouldn't follow him. They instead looked at the circumstances, which often happens to modern suburban Americans, doesn't it? We make our decisions based on circumstances, and they decided not to go in. But a generation later, God had raised up a faithful people who said, let's go, we can take it, because God's with us. What are those people? I mean, sure, they've got better weapons than us, but we got God. In Moses' final sermon to the people, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, he says this, see, this is Moses speaking for God, see, I have given you this land, so go in and take possession of it. Now, let's remember those two things. We have to hold those things in tension. There are a lot of things in our spiritual lives that we kind of hold in tension with one another. Number one, God had given them the land. Number two, they had to go in and take possession of it. And it was going to call for sacrifice, and it was going to call for incredible unity. And it was going to call for strategic planning. And it was going to call for a fiercity, if that's even a word, that they had not yet imagined. And they did it. They went in and they took the land. They took possession of it. So the next book in the Old Testament is Joshua. And in Joshua chapter 1, we read this. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, and all the Hittite country to the great sea on the west. And again, he lays out the territory for them. And then at the end of this book, in Joshua chapter 21, verse 43, we read this. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their forefathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. The story doesn't end there. They end up generations later falling into a cycle of unfaithfulness and they would just not pursue God and God would try to wake them up and he'd send them prophets and different voices and they wouldn't listen and they would fall away. And so eventually he said, I've had it. So I need to once again show you people this is not the way to follow me. So he once again rebuked them and he removed them from the land. But interestingly, when he removed them from the land... He took them to, most of them to a place called Babylon, and while they were in Babylon, 
One of their poets and songwriters wrote this song. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, we remembered the place and we wept. There on the poplars, we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of your songs of Zion. Well, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while we're in a foreign land? We're not in our place. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy, there was always something about place in the heart of God's people and, I believe, in the heart of God himself. The land was a central focus of God's activity and a central means of God blessing his people. Let me say that one more time. The land was always a central focus of God's activity and a central means of God blessing his people. In understanding the Old Testament, we've got to recognize and hold together two contradictory truths. So if you forget everything else this morning, in fact, for the last several weeks, don't forget this. If we're going to understand the Old Testament and God's activity in the Old Testament, we've got to know two things. I made one of these points very clearly this morning. We're going to make one of them very quickly. These are the two contradictory truths. On the one hand, it was all about the land. Abraham. Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's sons, the promise while they were in Egypt, Moses coming back, the generation that got punished because they wouldn't take it, the generation that went in and took it, and God's promise to them and God's blessing of them. It was always about the land. On the other hand, it was not about the land at all. Listen to this, Second Chronicles, a little book later in the Old Testament, I'm almost finished. 2 Chronicles chapter 6. They've been in the land for several generations now, and they've had a great king. His name was David. And David established the boundaries and the borders of the country of Israel. He built a palace for himself, and he wanted to build a palace for God because his heart was just for God. And God said to him, you know what, David? You've been a warrior, and your hands are bloody. I don't want you to build my place, my special, my house. I don't want you to build it. I want your son to build it. Jordan, I'm hoping God doesn't say that to me. I want your son to build it. So David collected all the material, and then Solomon, his son, built God's house for him, the temple in Israel. Listen to what Solomon says when he dedicates this temple. Chapter 6, verse 14, Solomon prays. He said, O Lord, God of heaven and earth, there's no God like you in heaven or on earth. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You've kept your promise to your servant, David, my father, with your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it, as it is today. Now, listen, now, Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant, David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said you shall not fail to have a man sit on the the throne before me, the throne of Israel, if only your sons are careful to do all and to walk in my ways according to my law as you have done. And now, O Lord God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David come true. But will God really dwell on earth with men? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. (laughs) The story arc of the entire Old Testament is to point to place. And now we've got the place, and now in this place, there's going to be a very, very special place. And God's told them for generations, not only are you going to get this land, but you're going to build this one special place for me. And remember, it's all about place. 
And now Solomon, knowing God's heart in the prayer, dedicating that place, that the entire story, this is the climax of the entire story, praying over that special place, Solomon says, but it's not about this. It's not about place. You don't dwell in a place. You own the heavens and the earth. You know what I think that means to us this morning? In part. I think it means to us this morning that this business that we're about trying to raise up a facility over there through which we want to honor God, that's awesome. God has been looking forward to that for years. He had us in mind for that project for years. It is critically important. It's the next thing that you and I have to do. That's why we're here. And then the contradictory truth. It's not important at all. That's that's not the place God is building. That's not the house God is building. The house God is building is here. We're going to see God's house being built this morning. There are four bricks that are coming this morning saying, I'm going to be a brick in God's house. The house God is building is here. It's you and I drawn together. It's our hearts connecting with one another. It's those of you who've been guests here for three weeks or six weeks or nine weeks deciding, I'm in. I want to be part of this. This is God's house. Not that thing across the street. That's only critically important. (laughs) This is critically important. And we have to hold those two truths together. And so today, we have a perfect opportunity to declare that contradictory truth. To say to ourselves, I'm all in with this place, with what God's doing over there. And even more so, I'm all in with this. So what we're going to do this morning is we are going to hear four people declare they're in. They want to be a brick. They want to be part of what God is doing here. So here's how we're going to do this this morning. We're going to listen to them tell why. Tell about who they are and how they got here. You know, when we do this at Gateway, I say this every time we do this at Gateway, but when we do this at Gateway, this is my favorite thing we do. This is extraordinary. This is the way I believe that Jesus said this is how we're to identify ourselves with him, how it is that we're supposed to follow him. We decide that we're going to get dunked in a pool of water. We do it because this is symbolic of us saying essentially, I believe so much that God has made a connection with me. I believe he's like cleansing me. I believe he's washing away all of the gunk in my life. So we dunk people in water as a sign and a symbol of our cleanliness and our new life, our new connection with him. We also do it because we are identifying with Jesus' death. We believe that he died, and three days later he walked out of the ground and didn't stink. He was alive. And we're identifying with that story this morning by burying ourselves and then raising ourselves in new life. And we'll use that language in a few minutes. So that's what we're doing this morning. We're building God's place this morning. We're going to do it a little differently today than we usually do. We're going to kind of lump them all together. I was afraid in some of their cases, some of you people might want to pray too long. So we're going to hear their stories by video this morning, and then we're going to have them all come up here at one time. What we have is Anthony and Anthony will come sit right here, and then... I've never done this before. I've baptized families before, but I've never baptized a set of sisters before. And this morning, the three sisters are going to be baptized together. How awesome. Wow, God. 
You know, my prayer for them has been not only that this would be confirming in their connection with God, but it would be confirming in their connection with one another, that they're doing this together. So we're going to baptize Anthony and the three girls. We're going to hear their story. And then those of you who would like to come up and pray over them, we will uh, come up and pray, and then we'll baptize them one at a time. All right, Jonathan.